Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Mark, I have a Stackwaddy game. Which Hurrah, always sent, keen. Always keen. Uh, it's been sent in by a friend of the pod, Al Wallace, and, uh, and this one's with a bit of a difference. It's entirely based on the wildest schemes of Brian Wilson, okay? Okay. So of these five madcap wheezers, okay, only one of them actually came to pass. Okay. okay. And you have to tell me what they are. So I'm going to go through them, okay? So number one, for the barnyard section of Smile, Ryan Wilson made a short 60-millimeter film, the star of which was a hen in white tennis shoes. Okay, that's number one. And number two, during the recording of Hang On To Your Ego for Pet Sounds, he got the engineer to bring a horse into the recording session. That's number two. Okay. Right. The hen, number one, horse, number two. The, the hen is wearing, to be clear again, is wearing white tennis shoes. Absolutely. Fully okay. Probably. Yeah, ready for Wimbledon. Yeah. Um, number three, Brian Wilson at one stage wanted to be the next big thing in hip-hop, so he recorded the rap song. Okay. Yep. We've got hen, we got horse, we got rap. We've got song. rap. Okay. Uh, number four, during the recording of Cool, Cool Water, it began to rain and he freaked out and flushed the tapes down the toilet. Right. And finally, number five. These are good. And finally, number <laughs> of course, five. It's entirely plausible it being Brian Wilson. But yeah, number five. Number five, he wrote a symphony for drums, a symphony for drums okay so of those five one of them is not true one of them is true I one of them is one, true though one, one of them, is, them true. is true i'm gonna immediately you don't have to give me the answer right yet but i'm gonna immediately uh discount the hip-hop the hip-hop rap song that i i simply cannot believe that happened um flushing the tapes down the toilet after hearing the rain i'm saying also for i don't know what reason but that clearly i don't think that happened either um, Symphony for Drums is the kind of thing he would have done, actually. It, well, they all are, let's be honest. But I'm going to say no to that too, which leaves me the horse in the recording studio or the hen with the tennis shoes. The hen could not have been wearing the tennis shoes. It's the horse. I'm right, aren't I? <laughs> right, here we go. Okay. Go on. The, the, uh, the hen in the, in the white tennis shoes were, didn't actually happen. That was an idea that stayed in Brian's head. Oh, right. But he, um, he did have that idea, did he? He did have that oh, idea. Oh, that's brilliant. He also had the idea for a symphony for drums, which didn't happen. Yep. Um, it, he, um, the, the business about flushing the, the tapes down the toilet is, is not actually true. And, uh, the, the so one between about, the rap song and the horse. Yeah, okay. And I'm the in the one, top two. Yeah, okay. The one that is actually true 
Is the rap song not? No. That's the one you said was definitely not true. That's the one I instantly dismissed. You're it, kidding. What was it called? It was called, okay, after watching Yo! MTV, he thought rap lyrics degraded women. So he worked with hip-hop producer Matt Dyke, recorded uh, his long-lost rap anthem, Smart Girls, for the unreleased Sweet Insanity album. So Fantastic. he actually did it. He actually did it. That's so, a very, very strong stack, Woody. That's very Al good. Al Wallace, that is extremely good work. That's really very is. Good. Although much of the heavy lifting, of course, was done by Brian Wilson himself. He does. So it, it didn't require any kind of ingenuity no. or creativity. Not much, anyway. That's a that's very, right. very good one. That's true. Okay, well, I, I stand defeated. So what have, you, what have you been doing this week? Well, look, I, I thought, did you, you didn't probably see the Wham documentary. Did I didn't. No, go on. I read it. Oh, no, amazing. I just saw that. Um, I saw that a couple of days ago. It just came out on Netflix by a guy called Chris Smith, the director, who was the guy who made the, uh, the, the documentary about the Doomed Fire Festival in 2017. And I think his point was that Wham are, uh, have always been considered kind of joke, terrible hair, uh, espadrilles, suntan lotion, cocktails. And that they deserved um, a, a decent version of their story. They, they were dismissed at the time, as you remember, by the press, himbo dimwits and all that kind of stuff. And I think they are an amazing story. You know, they only made a handful of singles. They only made two albums. It's an interesting documentary that doesn't use uh, any talking heads. It's all old footage and TV clips and, and mostly an interview that uh, George did uh, for, for BBC Radio. And, and again, it's, it, it is a story in that, in that nobody falls out. There's only two people in this group. They adore each other. There's no friction. There's none of those usual elements that make something work. You know, they have almost instant success and bow out a few years later at Wembley Stadium. But I thought it was interesting because there's various patterns emerge. One is the immense advantage of having a parent who disapproves what you do. I feel strongly that this is a real driver. George's dad did not want, banned him at one point from using the stereo, banned him from, from buying records, wanted him to become an accountant. And, you know, that gives you, I think that's probably more of a sense of, of, uh, of drive and compulsion than, uh, you know, parents uh, paying your stage uh, school, um, you know, fees and buying you any instrument you, instrument you want, don't you think? Yeah, no, true, true. And, uh, and I think it's also interesting that all musical stories, all arcs, consist, as far as I can see, of three things, of luck, of talent, and of drive. And yeah. the luck side of it is really interesting in their case. Andrew, age 12, uh, appoints and volunteers to be the person to look after George on his first day at big school when he's 11. And they both believe that that moment when they were put together was what, you know, formed friendship that, that may otherwise have never happened in this big class. Um, you know, they put a tape, a cassette tape, through the door of uh, a guy from Innovision Records who lives down the road, Mark Dean, who gets them a deal. Incredible luck. Also, incredible luck, there was a very, very, very bad deal. And they made very little money out of it. And it forced them to get a new deal with Simon Napier-Bell and because they're only getting 4% each on each single. And it's Simon Napier-Bell, really, that masterminds their success in America and the big Chinese tour and all that. And the other bit of luck is that they, they, there's a Top of the Pops cancellation. Young Guns got to 42. Somebody couldn't make it, dropped out. They were called in, went on Top of the Pops and got to number three the next week. So those are kind of interesting, I think. And the drive is interesting because, you know, if you don't have that, you're never going yeah. to succeed. And there's, there's George, you know, talking about the first tour they do and, and realising that the sound of that crowd is completely addictive. He has to go back and taste that again. He's simply compelled to carry on getting on stage. And, uh, and also he's consumed with grief when uh, he's made last Christmas and he knows he's going to be the Christmas number one and is then called up to be on the, on the Band-Aid single. Throughout the whole thing, all he can think about is the fact that he now won't be number one. This is clearly going to be number one. I think you need that kind of drive, really. I never thought of that. That was, must have been why. He was in yeah. a slight... He was in a slightly bad mood. He was. We were both there. Yeah, there. he was. He, he seemed was, very preoccupied. He was <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> all the time he's thinking, he must have got that thinking, let's hope it's a really rubbish yeah. record. Going, no, <laughs> it's not a rubbish record. It's got a fantastic chorus. It mentions Christmas. It's got, you know, it's got bells. It's, it's got, got bells got, yeah. on it. And he, he was absolutely guaranteed he was going to get his fourth number one with this record, you know. <laughs> and then there's the talent side of it. There's lots of really interesting things about that. I think one of his most talented moments is that he identifies the human league in 1981 as the way forward. It's the two girls in the Human League makes them this, girl, this group that anybody can imagine they could join. 
Mm. You know, they have this amazingly connective thing with the audience. And he says, I'm going to do that. So he recruits DC Lee and Shirley mm-hmm. to be the girls who, who are part of the group. And that that's a major connective masterpiece, I think. And also it's a really clear idea of what he wants to sound like. There's a bit where they go off to record um, Careless Whisper with Jerry Wexler. It's just amazing. Jerry Wexler. And he's recording in the studio where Aretha Franklin made, uh, you know, Respect, where Ray Charles recorded. He's standing on the very spot where Aretha Franklin stood. To it. And all this. And at the end of it, he, he, he listened to it back and says, it's no good. And he's going to scrap it and do, do it all himself and produce it himself, which is incredible, really. Yeah. And another thing is that where, where he, this is about sheer talent, is that he he sacks Andrew Ridgely from being a songwriting partner. You know, up to that point, Andrew Ridgely's contributed to the songs. He said, if we're going to get anywhere, I'm going to do this on my own. So you're not going to do this anymore. Not only does Andrew Ridgely accept that, but then decides he's going to give himself a role as being the kind of uh, visual mastermind of Wham! And, and invents this whole idea of the sportswear and what they were, which is actually just invincible, almost as important in some ways. So I thought that was really interesting. But uh, but the reaction to it has been absolutely astonishing. A lot of it, I think, to do with the fact that anybody in their mid-50s is relating to this very powerful soundtrack for that particular period of their life. And also that it's a, a kind of antidote to what's going on at the moment. The guy in the New did you read the New York Times review? Well, that was what I, exactly what I was going to raise. Yeah. That was, because that's the only thing I read. And... Um, I think it was the New York Times review. Certainly, an American review. I think it was the New York Times. Yeah, and and it struck me that um, in America, yeah, we've now moved on from identity politics to we now have identity journalism. Yeah, and and so all uh, criticism of anything, and particularly pop music, is dogged by the fact that at some point at the beginning, probably at the beginning of paragraph two, yeah, there. Two dreadful words will appear, and those will be a sentence beginning with as a, you know what I mean? Yeah. As a woman, as a lesbian, as a Hispanic American, as a whatever, because that will have to be the point of view from which the review is written. Absolutely. And so so what I found really irritating about this review was this kind of sniffy attitude towards what was supposedly white Britain's attitude to African-American music, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was somehow appropriated and that Wham! did a certain amount of this. And I just thought this is incredibly superficial reading of of, of British culture, British popular yes, culture. Yeah. Because, you know, the, 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 the world that George Michael and Andrew Ridgely grew up in, that kind of North London, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, lower middle class, whatever, um, you know, Greek background, whatever. And I tell you, the only thing I discovered from that New York Times review that I'd never thought about it before, and I think it tells you a lot that I'd never thought about it before, was that Andrew Ridgely was from Egyptian. It's Egyptian, I know. It never occurred to me. And and it's only when I, I looked at his picture on the cover of the Radio Times this morning, I thought, God, yes. Yes, he is. Yeah. And he looks Egyptian. But never, and I don't recall, you know, I was kind of editor of Smash Hits, as were you, around about the time of Wham's Ascendancy. I don't remember that ever being mentioned. No, it wasn't. Do you? No, it was not all about George not being a, Greek. Nothing and about he, him at all. Even that wasn't, there wasn't that much about him being Greek at that no. point. You know, because... The, the music that everybody who came from that kind of background knew was, it was clubbing music. It, it was soul, it was, really. It, it, well, it was, it was a gap band. It was the Crazy yeah. Daisy. It was the Southgate yeah. Royalty. Yeah. It was, you know, it was Furry Dice music. It was yeah. Robbie Vincent or Radio yeah. London. It was all that stuff. And nobody ever stopped to think about, about it as being African-American or no, whatever. No, not remotely. It was just... You know, and what struck me thinking about it, it was it would amaze Chummy from the New York Times to 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 re, to to be told that actually the most significant DJ figure in terms of the of the ascendancy of all that music over a period of fifty more than fifty years is Tony Tony Blackburn. Tony Blackburn, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and there's nobody more vanilla than Tony Blackburn. No, not remotely. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but. It was never seen as this is kind of black music or this is African-American music. It was just music. 
Yeah. It really was. And some of it was played by, you know, black people, some of it played by white people, some of it played by people of Greek origin or yeah. Egyptian or whatever. But as you, you know, say, everything now is being seen through this focus. Tiny of, of, little of, of, lens. Of tiny lens of, t- of today's, um, you know, t- today's correct viewpoints. You I know, found it And reevaluate which is absolute nonsense. I thought it was, I really got irritated with her review. Yeah. And I thought, this is the kind of review that I read all the time now. Yeah. And it's identity journalism. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I've had enough. Cultural appropriation. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So you got sent this clip, didn't you, by... I got sent a clip, yeah, by Richard Morton Jack, who's the guy, the author of the fantastic Nick Drake book, who we interviewed the other day. And is you know, he's been researching that whole early 70s period of, of Nick Drake for the book. And uh, I'd come across this amazing clip of a group called Renia from 1974. And Renia were, a, which I, we'll include it with this podcast, you know, and uh, it's, I thought it was really interesting. They're the kind of, um, they're, they're kind of, you know, uh, plodding uh, prog rock foot soldiers, aren't they? And there's five of them and they've got their flares and they've got their van. It's the entirely analogue world of steaming up the M1 all the way to Liverpool to, 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 to drive 500 miles there and back to make a, a profit of, of, uh, of minus one pound, you know. And I thought it was just a really interesting time capsule into that particular world, don't you think? Of just uh, when the only way you could get anywhere was if you had, a, if you're lucky enough to record deal, which they did, they were signed to Transatlantic, is that you know you're hoping you're going to create some kind of stage show that's uh, s- sufficiently interesting to get written about or get some kind of press. Or if you're very, very lucky, get some radio, and extremely lucky, get some TV, which there are very few opportunities. And what a slog it all is. The five of them have their day jobs, don't they? You know, they're, and they're hiring their vans and spend their entire life in blue ball services, trogging up the motorway to play their slightly, uh, slightly indifferent music. What did you make of it? I thought it was a really interesting example of a, of a thread that goes all the way through British broadcasting. Yeah. And I'm sure somebody could ought to be able to put together a page on YouTube just made up of... Uh, Little documentaries made about groups that never got anywhere. Yeah. All about how hard it is to get somewhere. And these these documentaries could have been made in the 60s, could have been made in the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, it, it, it's very kind of look at life. Yes. Do you realise, do you realise, viewers, that people form pop groups, they're not instantly really rich. And <laughs> this is just, this comes as... It comes as a shock to, to the people making the film. Uh, Renya, I thought, were quite, quite interesting in that I'd love to talk to them now. Absolutely. And there are probably a bun- bunch of blokes in the latter half of their 70s, probably. And and they must look back on the, that thing and how stupid were we, you know. I know. What, 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 do, what, do ex, what do we expect the what world to do for we expect? I was thinking the same thing as if you found them. You could make a really nice little tight documentary about it, you know. And there's a moment where you get to them. One of them, I think, has got a job as a surveyor or something. Yeah, there's two, two of them have got jobs. They work and the other, there's two of them, uh, Kenny and Dave, who, who have a job washing, just washing dishes together in this yeah. little restaurant. <laughs> and there's some amazing lines. One of them says, if Renia don't make it, this is the, over, this is the, the voiceover, Kenny and Dave have little else to look forward to. Well, Renia, here's the news. Here's the news. Now, you know, I, I pride myself on knowing quite a lot about 70s failed rock and roll bands, you know, because I worked in record shops during that time. Had you heard of Renia? Because actually I hadn't. I, I hadn't. Had. I hadn't. And so I really racked yeah. my brains and I looked at the album cover and thought, yeah, just about really dimly. Yeah, we call it. Now they were signed to Transatlantic. The Transatlantic label, with all due respect, was not the place to break a rock and roll group. Although, to be fair, they had had Stray. Do you remember Stray? Yes, all the bitches. They but were on, great hair. They were on Transatlantic, but mainly Transatlantic it was kind of folky stuff. It was yeah. Griffon. It was Billy Connolly. You know, it was that kind of thing. Yeah, Griffon's so in, Midnight Mushrumps album. Somebody playing a crumb horn. So. By signing to Transatlantic, they weren't exactly buying themselves a winning ticket in the lottery of uh, a popular music. But anyway, I did a bit of research, Mark. I did some digging on the internet. I haven't told you about this. Go on. And it took a lot of doing. 
and because there really isn't much about about them out there, you know, because they, they pretty much disappear without trace. The singer went on to be the singer in a group called Dirty Dricks, who made a few albums for Polydor in the mid-70s. Oh, right, okay. Didn't really do anything. But anyway, I want to draw your attention to somebody who left the group just before that film was made, okay? And oh, God, you're going to tell me went on to be enormously successful. Was the, he was a drummer. Oh, my Lord. And okay. he, le- he left... Just before the record... Was he successful in his own right? Was he successful Can I just tell the story? Oh, God, 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 yeah, yeah. The drummer left just before the record was made and obviously just before the film was made. And he, he, he went on to devote himself to his, his day job, which was selling ad space on, on Beat Instrumental magazine. Yeah. Do you remember Beat, Beat yeah, I do. And he was very good at it. So he left... And he was emboldened sufficiently to start his own magazine, which was International Musician and Recording World. Oh, my God. Which he built with a partner into a very profitable title from which he diversified into Asian Babes, no. 44 other specialist porn magazines. He eventually... It's not Felix Dennis, is it? No. He eventually launched OK Magazine to compete with Hello. And he made so much money, he bought Express Newspapers. And he eventually bought Channel 5. And they always make jokes about the drummer being the thick one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, obviously, this drummer realized that there was a better future in selling magazines to people who dreamed of being rock stars. Dreamed members of Renia. Rather than trying to be a rock star himself. And that drummer was Richard Desmond. That's phenomenal. Richard Desmond, of course, has, this makes complete sense because he has a band, or had a band, go. called Richard Desmond's All-Stars, in Is which that? he played the drums. With the singers and, people like Robert Plant and Roger Daltrey. Robert Dalt- Plant and various people are in it. Exactly, Roger Daltrey. Uh, all these old muckers from back in the day. That's an amazing story, isn't it? And so, and that is the most wonderful illustration of, you know what they always use, you know, I think it's brilliant, the idea of him thinking, well, this is a mugs game pretending to be, I'm going to be a successful rock star in this group. I know I'll sell products to people who want to be rock stars. And so they always used to say about the 18th, is it 1849 gold rush in California? You know what they say about that? They say the only people who made any money. Oh, the people 80s, selling shovels. Or people who sell the shovels. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and that's what this that's is like. That's very true. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, what's, what's happened. Uh, that's what happened with Renya. And it's uh, you know, it's a... It's a tale that's, that's learning for all of us. Oh, it is. There's the one very poignant moment, and I thought of you in it, actually, where um, you meet their PR girl, you meet the head of the uh, yeah, of yeah. the record company, uh, who's Nat Josephson from Transatlantic, who's rather pompous about it all. But you also meet their plugger, a guy called Rick Hopper. <laughs> and Richard Bolton Jack had said he discovered that this guy would be in Cambridge with, with, with Nick Drake, as a friend of his, and put on the first Nick Drake concert, uh, concerts. So he's a very, very intelligent and rather shy and very middle-class um, Cambridge University graduate, you know, and he's now become a record plugger. And there he is in these flares with his shoulder bag full of albums going into the BBC to go and see, I think it's Jeff Griffin. Jeff Griffin and Bob and Harris. And whispering Bob Harris, who's wearing, of course, a tank top. And uh, it's just this wonderful scene that's been filmed where he goes in and says, hi, I've got this uh, great record um, by uh, Rainier, and I think you, I dropped off last week and I wonder if you'd heard it. And they very, actually very sweetly and very diplomatically say that they don't think it amounts to very much. And, of course, as a plugger, what can you do? You can't really argue. You can't say you're wrong. You know, I can remember... At times I stood in for John Peel and various people uh, in Radio 1 early 80s, sitting in, in uh, producers' offices, people like Chris Lysett, you know, and the pluggers would come in. I can remember one guy coming with an Iron Maiden record and saying, you've got to play this, it's fantastic. And he said, well, I, I, you know, it's really not our kind of thing. And I'm not sure if I like it very much. I remember him just leaving and then turning back and saying, it's a muscular ballad. And that was his kind of line. That was his, that was his cell that he invented to try and make you take one different look at it, you know. 
I was thinking, what a tough old job, because you were doing that, but not long after, you were going around Radio 1, weren't you? With yeah, your, with I did. With your bag it's and a, your Jonathan Richmond, the Modern Lovers records, or whatever it would have been. It's a nightmare job um, yeah. in that if you, you know, if you say, have you listened to so and so, what do you think of it? And their initial response is lukewarm. Nothing is going to change that, really. Yeah. You, you can't say anything that's going to change it. The only thing that I've realised and I've probably realised over time, actually, and which applies to radio people, and it applies to media people generally, yeah. is that the only thing they're susceptible to is the fact that there is in, that there might be enthusiasm for it for the record elsewhere that they don't share. Yeah, and so. The worst thing in the world is if if a plugger comes in and says, what do you think of Santa? And you go, nah, I don't like it, it's rubbish. And then your competition down the corridor gets on it and it proves to be really popular. Yeah. Then you look a fool. And so radio people are herd animals, completely herd animals. Yeah. That's what they're interested in. What's the story? What's the plot? Has everybody else bought into it? Yeah. If everybody else buys into it, I will buy into it. You yeah, because I don't want to be made to look ridiculous by the, being the person who's left out of it all. That's the way. That's the way it works. You know, they're they're not. You know, they're not rugged independents. They're not. And mavericks. also, is that thing that kind of creatures. pride? Yeah. Once you've said that you don't like something, it's absolutely impossible to then turn around and start playing it. You know, because you've nailed your colours to the mast. So uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's very very hard. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So anyway, talking about inside entertainment uh, behind the scenes, I've this week started watching once again. Oh, right. And I may may disappear for some time just watching this. The Larry Sanders show. Yeah. Um, Have you ever seen it? Have you never seen it? I don't know if I have. No, that's terrible. Let me explain it ran between 1992 and 1998, so it's, you know, it's 30 years old. Yeah. And it's basically, it's behind the scenes of a, of a talk show, of a nightly talk show of the kind of yeah. Johnny Carson, David Letterman, those kind of things. And it's got three key characters in it. One is Gary Shandling, who plays Larry Sanders, the host who's just just wants to be loved uh, as a host do yeah and then jeffrey tambor is hank kingsley who's his sidekick the guy who sits on the sofa and kind of laughs at his jokes so he he serves completely at the uh, at the pleasure of gary of, of larry sanders yeah and the third and probably key figure is Artie, who's a producer 
<laughs> Artie is the most brilliant, brilliant depiction of a TV producer I've ever made. I've ever met because basically, scratch any t- TV producer, and they have no morals whatsoever. <laughs> All that a TV producer cares about is is, is it, it working? Is it ratings. working? How's my ratings doing? You know, yeah, I will do oh, yeah. anything. I will do absolutely anything for for ratings. And uh, oh god, it's brilliant. It's um, I hesitate to say dark, but it's just immensely realistic in the in the sense that all those people care about they are completely umbilically connected yes. to the success of that TV show night after night, and that then led me to go back and read. Have you ever read? Kenneth Tynan's 1978 profile of Johnny Carson in the New Yorker. Which no, is, I haven't known. I remember our old mate Al Clark. You remember Al Clark? Used I to do. Head of, head Virgin, of Press Virgin. Virgin Head of Press. Incredible. And went, went on to produce Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And, you know, also. One sweet. of the funniest people on the telephone. Like, One I've of the funniest. To in my absolutely. Life. Have, you ever, have you ever read any old uh, features about, about XTC? Oh, yeah. Al Clark was usually in the. Because Al. Al, Al kind of made XTC in the sense that he loved XTC. He loved them so much, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he did. um, but anyway, he's very funny. And and Al remember saying that he was saying this to me in the late seventies. He said, "You got to read this. It's the greatest profile of anybody in entertainment ever done." And I read it again this week, and it is absolutely extraordinary because it's about Johnny Carson, who became rich and famous for mastering this really odd skill, which is to be a, a late-night TV host. So he's mastering a skill which is not transferable to any other field. You can't go and do it on stage. You can't take it anywhere. You can't put it in a film. It just works in this really odd format. It is it's been, so it's peculiar. Been, it's yeah. been developed. And there's a lot of explanations how it works, which I'd never fully absorbed. You know, they record these things earlier in the evening, like 5.30 or whatever, to, to be broadcast. There's a little bit of time for editing. And so they bring a guest on, and the guest is very often comedian. And the producer, the arty figure, is not in the gallery. The producer is a few feet away from them on the studio floor, watching it on a monitor. And if he doesn't feel it's going as well as it should do, he just holds up a sign to the presenter saying, commercial. So the presenter goes at really irregular points, goes, we'll so go we're to going to take a break now. We'll see you after these messages. And so basically there's two minutes during which the producer comes on, whispers in the ear of, yeah. the, of the presenter, what the bloody hell are we going to do here or whatever? And if you're the poor bozo guest who's sitting Who on the immediately stage, knows that you're not, you, you know, you're not uh, d- d- delivering the goods. So it, come, so it comes, comes back to the host after the commercials. And the host may say, so anyway, um, tell us another funny story about your mother. Or the host may say, my next guest. Oh, <laughs> you, no, no, yes. really, my lord. Are you the person to see that? Oh, my God. Who just has to shuffle down the sofa and make room. You're cast out into, into the entertainment. And then required to like, not butt in at all. Absolutely. spare part for the next not, 30 minutes. Not butt in at all. And watch someone else who's effortlessly entertained and has the entire audience, you know, falling about laughing. But it, it's fascinating to watch these things, to watch it, you know, because you'd obviously watch all these chat shows in a million pieces on YouTube nowadays. Or you can watch Gary Chandling, Larry Sanders and so forth. And uh, and what what's extraordinary about the American chat show format is that on the surface it's immensely relaxed. You know, here here my old mate Sansa just popped in. Where have you yeah. been? Yeah, tell us a story about what happened to you yesterday. It's so lo- apparently so loose. Underneath underneath it all is power politics that the Medici's would have been terrified. <laughs> <laughs> People's careers are just getting boosted or, or torpedoed yeah. in seconds during those programs. It's absolutely extraordinary. You, you must watch it. It's, I but mean, I'm you're prepared it. to do it because you know the the the, the value of, of being a hit on one of those shows is just 
career-altering, isn't it? Well, Gary Shandling, who plays Larry Sanders, I was watching an old interview with him. Again, you know, you can go down rabbit holes with this stuff, and there are fantastic interviews with these people. Gary Shandling, sadly, no longer with us. Um, and and he said, you know, he went to L.A. to make it as a comedian, and it took years, you know, crafting material, just sitting there all day, writing jokes. Yeah. Joke, after joke, after joke. And Gary Shandling, they used to say it was so high-wire in his approach to his art that sometimes he would just write the setup line and then go on stage and say it, thinking that the punchline would come to him. I mean, no, that's, that's, no, that's unbelievable. So he's, what he's actually improvising the entire he's, thing. Absolutely. Anyway, he did. He was working in the comedy store in uh, in Hollywood, and then he heard that the talent producer from Johnny Carson from the Tonight Show was going to come and see him. And he came, and he had a really good night that night. He says, it's real risky, it might not happen, but it did. It was really good. And then the guy afterwards got in touch with him and said, I'm going to come and see you again to make sure it wasn't a fluke. And so the guy came, oh, a, week God. Guy came a week later. You imagine how tense you are about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't a fluke. You know, he, he killed again. He went really well. And so he was invited on Johnny Carson, and they said to him, you know, it's pretty much, it's Thursday now. What are you doing Tuesday? What are you doing Tuesday? Would you like to be an international star on Tuesday? You know, because because the the because your life will be completely altered. Yeah, the power of the Tonight Show changed people's lives. So it was just unarguable. And so he went and did it on Tuesday. He was he was big success. They called him back. He did it five times. Incredible. Over over I don't know a couple of years. He says, and only after the fifth time did Johnny invite me to join him on the sofa afterwards? Because that was the honour everybody wanted. Because if you were if you're invited to come over from the microphone and sit on the sofa, apart from just doing your set, it meant he decided you were here to stay. Well, we also, the, yeah, that he, and he improved on you on a personal level. Absolutely. Yeah. But he, you know, he had that kind of power, but that kind of power could reside, you know, amongst amongst such a small number of people. It's it, it's absolutely astonishing. And uh, but so I do recommend anybody who's never seen it, the Larry Sanders show, and particularly to pay note to Artie, who's played by Rip Torn, again, no longer with us, uh, the hard-nosed producer who I was watching an episode yesterday where he fell out with the woman who sold the advertising for the network. It says... Madam, I killed a man like you in Korea. (laughs) This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. You and I both suffer from that thing where uh, people keep saying to us, oh, God, you wrote a review of so-and-so, and and you've had no memory of writing this at all. Or you, you know, you... um, you introduced somebody on telly, you introduced Kissing the Pink, or you interviewed Fish from Marillion, or you interviewed Status Quo, or you interviewed Sting or whatever, or Roger Daltrey, and you just simply cannot remember these things. And you had a really good example of that the other day, didn't you, when somebody rang up about, was it about Donovan, about a review? Well, it was Stuart Penny, who's, yeah. uh, I don't know, maybe a listener to this podcast, I certainly, I, I kind of follow him on social media and so forth. Yeah. Yep. Stuart is probably around about my age, I should imagine. And um, Stuart appears to me to be the world's leading authority on Donovan. I think <laughs> he, he is. And somebody's got to be. Somebody's got to be. Someone's got to be. And, and if you're going to pick somebody, Donovan, you could do worse. Absolutely. And he has the advantage that there are obviously he was there at the time, kind of thing, you know, so he hasn't, hasn't just picked it up in a back issue of Mojo. Um, anyway, and he, he sent me a. Some a message via Twitter and said, "Do you remember a review that appeared in Q? And he thought it was Q, late nineties of of a Donovan album called Sutras, where the reviewer said that um, that he he apparently wrote a hundred songs for this record, and I think it was Mark Ellen. He said, so he said, could you ask Mark? So I I sent it to you, Mark. I said, have you got any memory of this? It's in October nineteen ninety six. So you you then well, did, well, I did I had a look at the queue, which I have them still here. The, uh, the copy of Q from October nineteen sixty wasn't in that. It wasn't in the next one, but in the December one, there it was. It was reviewed by you, <laughs> so then sent you, and you had no, which is very funny actually. And it did point out that yes, he'd apparently written a hundred songs, and you, you, but your punchline at the end is, 
you know, if these are the, you know, the, the 12 that finish up on the record, God alone knows what the remainder must it's have been. It's a really like. unkind thing to <laughs> say. Uh. <laughs> but you were in but a bad mood. And I hurry, I'm sure. In a hurry, you know. I, um, I had no recollection of that whatsoever. Yeah. If somebody had said to me, you reviewed Donovan's Sutras in 1996, seven or whatever, I would have said, no, I didn't. I will not have that said. <laughs> that is, that is how a, dare you? How dare you? Of course I had. And um, there's two things here. One is these reviews, you know, when, when everybody had to write loads of reviews, they were flying past you at, at some kind of rate every week, every month, every day. You know, you might have to do with Q. You might have to do like six or something like yeah. that. You know, one long one, one medium, and then, the and then a few. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you did your best. Um, but the other thing is that is that now it is inevitable that whatever you wrote, if even the least considered wisp of a review that you knocked out while getting in the office early one Friday morning, you know what I mean having listened to the record twice or something and just desperately trying to... Will resurface. Will come back. It will come back to haunt you. It will come back. Nothing ever dies. There's an almost almost mathematical certainty about this. It's like we talk about Donovan. Now, Donovan's pretty well known. But even Donovan had loads of records that nobody remembers at all. Even, dare I say it, Mark, in the future, Renya... No, yeah. We'll have we'll have some little corner. Yeah, they'll internet. have a little website where a few people <laughs> gather to sit in a metaphorical ring of candles <laughs> and uh, weep about the fact that their record wasn't more successful. And get in touch with the people. Get in touch with each other. Say, God, I love that bell on track three. No, but the tambourine comes in. Get in touch with the people who wrote dismissive reviews. Oh, them, yeah, yeah. So how do you feel now? <laughs> Ruined their lives. It's, I had a, a, a similar... Not quite the same, but a similar case of this in the, in the last week. It must be, is it the 50th anniversary of Rock Folly? Yeah, it would be. I You're think it is. Wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's 73, would that be about right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was a, a TV, drama, comedy, musical, whatever. Did it run for like six episodes? And it was like a big deal in 1973. And... Um, Starring um, Julie Covington, yes. It was. Charlotte Charlotte Cornwell, yes. Yep. And Rula Lenska. Am I right in saying this? I think yeah, I'm. who went on to As uh, the, well, marry, well, the, didn't she? Um, Dennis, Waterman. Dennis, Waterman. Dennis Waterman. I think so, yeah. There was so, Julie, Covington, Julie Covington went on to become do all kinds of interesting things. Subsequently, had the first number one with Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. She did. Yeah. Charlotte Cornwell was also, I think I'm right in saying, I'm saying saying this off the top of my head. Isn't she the sister of John le Carre? I thought you were going to say Hugh Cornwell. Oh, right. Whose real name is David David Cornwell. Oh, could be. Um, Anyway, it was written by Howard Shulman and and, and Andy McKay at Roxy Music did the music. Yeah. And it was about a girl group called, I think, the Little Ladies. Was it? Yeah, that's right. That? And if you were like me, you know, a Little Feet fan working in a record shop, you loathed this thing on site. You absolutely anathema. It. it was ITV trying to do behind the scenes in pop You music. scoffed, didn't you, very loud in every aspect of it. And so it Absolutely. was completely kind of unrealistic. And then what made it worse was that the soundtrack album came out on Island Records because Andy Mackay had done the music and was an enormous really well. hit. Enormous hit for about a month. Went straight, went to number one, I think yeah. I might say. It was absolutely huge. So... I'm working in a record shop, having to sell loads of copies of this record that I felt personally insulted by. <laughs> anyway, and so, uh, you know, I dismissed that. I could just imagine you having to hold your nose as you put oh, it in really? the plastic bag. You know, really, really. Or say, do you really want that? Or do you want a copy of, uh, you know, um, the Doobie Brothers? Beef Cap- Cap- <laughs> Captain and me. Um, yeah. 
And anyway, Jude, our old mate Jude Rogers, I think Jude must have been writing some piece for, I don't know, the yeah. Guardian or somewhere about this anniversary. And she tweeted, said, did anybody remember what they thought about this at the time? And I said, yes, I absolutely loathed it. You know, it brought out all my worst rock snobbery, rock snob tendencies. And um, and then I had, um, subsequent to that, I had Matthew Sweet from Radio 3 getting in touch with me, saying, I'm doing a thing with Andy Mackay to mark the 50th oh, anniversary. And I'd like to put to him some of your objections. And he's like, yeah, did you remember what you, what you thought? And I was saying, Matthew, it's 50 years ago for yeah. loud. You know, it's just what I thought off the top of my head. And it's like, it's like people want you to either, either apologize for what you thought or go back and listen to it again. It's like, it's pop music. What's the point? You know what I mean? We don't have to be right about everything. Don't do be we? right. Also, you, what you're forgetting is the context of that particular week or that yeah, particular yeah. month and what else was preoccupying and all the other records were out that were infinitely, infinitely better and more important. <laughs> yes, yeah. But, but you're so right. Rob Follies was just concerned to be absolute tripe, wasn't it? You know, well, because, ITV, now, because, because now it can be, it can be reassessed Probably, uh, you know, using those two words as a so and so. Oh know, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. three can, girls in a rock band, or whatever. <laughs> and whereas all I just remember is it wasn't very good. That's yeah. what I thought, you know. But here's the truth, you know, that everybody gets their day in the sun eventually in pop music. Nothing, nothing is going to be forgotten. You know, yeah. the afterlife. Is is longer, obviously, than the kind of first flush of success. Yeah, which, which kind of brings me really in, you know, uh, in elegantly to the thing you and I were talking about the other day when Guns and Roses popped up at uh, Glastonbury, and uh, you know they, they played in, I think they played at, at Tottenham, didn't they? I think they did uh, a few weeks ago. And yes, they did. Yeah, but that's so, so, certainly headlining, big thing, you know. So, how long ago is that? That yeah, you know, I I remember going to the states, and it must be <coughs> and uh, you know MTVs in full flow and so forth. And I remember seeing these videos for Sweet Child of Mine, but more particularly Paradise City which I was always interested in because they'd been directed by Nigel Dick. Nigel Dick, old pal of ours from Stiff Old pal of ours, who we've had on these, you know, on, on chats and word in your ear since. And so I was always interested in these. And I thought they were really good videos. And I thought Paradise City particularly, I thought it was a really exciting record. And I thought, that's an exciting band. I can see them being huge. And it's only latterly I've thought to myself, was there ever a group in popular music history that had a shorter period of being good than Guns N' Roses? There was a period of about three months when they were suddenly, even people who didn't like that kind of music thought that they were um, chic and fashionable and interesting, and didn't they? And then it just sort of just faded out very, very rapidly. There's just nothing I've heard by them ever since has had anything like that, that quality. And also, the other thing is that so much of it was about what they looked like. And they looked oh, perfect. They looked fantastic. That. And once they stopped looking fantastic, that made a huge difference too. I mean, all that no stuff about Axl Rose looking like Benny Hill on Glastonbury was hilarious. And he looks, he's unrecognisable, isn't he? It's all right for, for Slash, because Slash is a cartoon. Isn't it? Slash is just a, a bloke with curly hair and a, and a top hat and electric guitar. And he, from a distance, he pretty much looks the same. Axel Rose is just Axel Rose used to be so gorgeous. No, Absolutely. No. I fancied him. Yeah. <laughs> the word podcast. Clearly, there is no plan. I got a bit of correspondence from Giles um Fraser. He points out that he's been listening to a couple of American po- podcasts recently where people haven't said people were drunk, <laughs> but they've said that they were overserved. Oh, that's that good. One? Overserved. Yeah. Uh, and he says, I reckon we'll hear this over here soon. It's sort of, he likes Overserved it because, is good because it's almost like it's not their fault. There you go. That's the point. Because over refreshed was this, there is the British version of that, isn't it? Which is, uh, you know, that's clearly your own making. 
But overserved means that people keep saying, you must have another beer. Sure, no one said that one. No, go on. One more won't do you any harm. It always intrigues me when I watch American dramas that America, in my experience, is, is a country where if you go in a bar and you have a beer and then you obviously do the British thing, which is I'm going to have another one, yeah. the Americans will go, oh, you have another one. <laughs> I know. I remember going out for a drink with an American in a New York bar and, and uh, we had one and I said, yeah, let's get another one. He said, he said, oh, I'm fine. I said, what? I thought we were going to get a bit giddy here. He said, no, no, I mean, I'm not thirsty. I said, we're not drinking beer because we're thirsty. This is insane. But no, they have a totally different approach, don't they? But I don't know. On the on the dramas, any kind of drama nowadays, or comedy, or the lightest comedy, will invariably have some scene where the characters go to a bar and they're going to get hammered, and they're going to they're going to order shots and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And it's the kind of it's the kind of drinking that I've never really seen in real life. It sort of only exists on American dramas. I've never actually been party to that kind of thing at all. Whereas British drinking is just, it's more rhythmic. Isn't it? it's, you know, I'm here for a couple of hours. That will probably be three it's pints. A session. Or whatever, you it's know, a three pint whatever. session. We go a pinting. That's right. <laughs> Go a-pinting. Go a-pinting. So, um, well, you're going to have an opportunity to come a-pinting with us in the near future, aren't you, Mark, after the summer? Well, we've got to, we're going to announce very shortly. It comes to save these dates. We're going to have a, a podcast event in central London on the 25th of September, evening of, mm. and another one in uh, in October on, the, on Monday the 16th. So Monday the 16th and Monday the 25th of September, uh, will be, yeah, we're going to have events which we shall announce fairly shortly. That'll be Save, very good too. Save the date, as they yeah, say, yeah. you know, make sure you do that. Uh, while you're there, if you haven't already done so, however you're listening to this or watching it or whatever, do make sure you, you, you like it or favorite it or whatever is the most appropriate way to signal your approval, assuming we have your approval, um, because that sort of stuff really, really helps us. It does. And, uh, you know, keep keep an eye out on YouTube for whatever's coming next on our Word in Your Ear channel. And uh, if you haven't already joined the quiz on Friday evenings and you're a Patreon supporter, do make sure you do that. If you want to know about being a Patreon supporter, if you go to patreon.com slash Word in Your Ear and you get full details there. Ta-ta. <laughs> See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.